This message comes from NPR sponsor, Progressive, and it's Name Your Price Tool. Say how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show coverage options within your budget. Visit Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Hi, it's Indira. I'm your host for this edition of the News Roundup. Just a quick heads up before we start the show. The news is rapidly changing and things may be different by the time you hear this episode. So stay up to date with all the latest by listening to your local NPR member station and visiting npr.org for all the latest. Thanks for listening and enjoy the show. You're listening to the 1A Podcast. I'm Indira Lakshmanan of the Associated Press, and it's time for the News Roundup. Let's get into it. Here in Washington, it's been a week to pick your battle. Republican House lawmakers are trying to impeach the man in charge of Homeland Security. We have not approached this day or this process lightly. Secretary Mayorkas' actions have forced our hand. The Constitution gives Congress the power to impeach federal officials for treason, bribery, and high crimes and misdemeanors. That is a high bar, and we do not have that. Meanwhile, in the Senate, both parties are trying to keep a border security deal alive under pressure from all sides. We know this is hard, but Democrats and Republicans in this chamber have an obligation to tune out the outside noise and finish the work of protecting our national security. Let's introduce our panel who can help us unpack the deals, the no deals, and everything in between. Wendy Benjaminson is Washington's senior editor for Bloomberg News. Welcome. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me on. Idris Kaloon is Washington bureau chief for The Economist. Idris, happy Friday. Happy Friday to you, too. Thank you for having me. And Axios political reporter Alex Thompson. Alex, welcome back. Great to be here. All right, let's start in Congress with a big deal that is on its way to being done. Late on Wednesday, the House passed a nearly $80 billion bipartisan tax deal that would expand the child tax credit and tax breaks for businesses. It now heads to the Senate. Wendy, what exactly is included in this bill? There's quite a bit for everyone in this bill, Indira. And and one of the things we should probably pause and mark for a moment is that Congress got something done, or at least halfway done, which is more than we can say for a lot of other things that I know we're going to talk about today. Um, this is a $78 billion, that's with a B dollar bill, that would expand the child tax credit for working class and, and poor families and restore a set of corporate tax breaks that had lagged mostly for uh, research and development and capital expenses. So it had broad bipartisan support. The bill passed 357 to 70, which is a lopsided vote we haven't seen in the House in, in a very, very long time. It goes to the Senate now. There are some Republicans who um, are worried about the bill uh, because they say it expands the child tax credit too much, and they have other issues with it. But I think we think it's probably going to end up passing. So, Wendy, as you said, the next stop is the Senate. Adrice, Republican Senator Chuck Grassley of Iowa told reporters this week, quote, passing a tax bill that makes the president look good, mailing out checks before the election means he could be reelected. What do you make of that comment? To me, it sounds like he's saying the quiet part out loud. Yes, I think that's exactly uh, what I thought. Uh, It's the quiet part. You know, you don't want to give the president a win uh, in an election year. But as Wendy was just saying, you know, the child tax credit is an important part of this bill. 
Um, it's not nearly as expansive as the 2021 tax credit that Joe Biden passed, but it would still mean that probably half a million children who are in poverty now would no longer be if this bill were to pass. It has some things for uh, corporations that Republicans would like to get behind. And as Wendy pointed out, it passed by overwhelming bipartisan measure uh, in the House. Now, uh, despite that, some some senators are going to oppose it, and uh, it might not be taken up very quickly. Um, Chuck Schumer has said that um, the Senate has to consider a Ukraine aid bill and a border security bill, which is a trickier negotiation before it can get to this uh, measure uh, in front of it. Well, Idris, considering that it passed the House with such a wide margin, um, does the bill have, once it's up for vote in Senate, have a pretty good chance of success? Um, I would think so. But, um, you know, some have already pointed to the the child tax credits uh, work incentives. Uh, This is something that the designers of the bill actually took into account. So, um, you know, it's a slightly technical point, but uh, it won't be giving as much money to families that are uh, reporting no income as the previous version of the child tax credit that was designed to to deal with this critique in in and of itself. So, um, you know, on the policy, I think that there's a lot that Republicans would themselves agree with. uh, But as Senator Grassley put it, uh, the politics are pointed in the wrong direction for them. And so one might triumph over the other. Hmm. Okay. Well, another deal that's heading in the opposite direction is the bipartisan push by the Senate to pass a border security bill. That would also unlock aid for Ukraine and funds for Israel, Gaza, and Taiwan. Alex, tell us what obstacles still stand in its way. <laughs> I mean, it might take the full hour, um, <laughs> but I will. Um, but first, the first thing we have to know is that we still haven't seen the text of this border bill, um, you know, except for the people negotiating on the Senate side. But even if they were to unveil and get something like 70 votes, 80 votes, the House representatives led by Republicans have already said it's dead on day one. And Joe Biden, President Joe Biden, has already said that he would support the bill and he would basically use emergency powers to shut down the border the day he is that he signs it. Um, But there doesn't appear to be any appetite in the House to take up this bill. They've basically argued that the president should use the authority that he has. And, you know, some Republicans have said the quiet part out loud, similar to Senator Grassley, which is they don't want to give the president a bipartisan, uh, you know, victory on an issue that is at the centerpiece of Donald Trump's presidential campaign. All right. Well, here is House Speaker Mike Johnson talking to reporters on Tuesday. He said that the suggestion that former President Trump was pressuring him to sink the deal was, quote, absurd. And he added this. From what we've seen, clearly what's been suggested is in this bill is not enough to secure the border. And we have to insist we have a responsibility, a duty to the American people to insist that the border catastrophe has ended. Meanwhile, we have a listener named Jay who asks, Trump has been pretty clear that he doesn't want Congress to address immigration because he needs to campaign on it. And Senator McConnell even said that Republicans, quote, don't want to do anything to undermine him. What are the chances that Republicans will ever address immigration if they win in the fall, since it's better politics for them if it remains a problem? Wendy, I know that's not an easy question, but I'm going to throw it to you. (laughs) Well, thanks. Um, 
in election year is always hard to get things done, but this has risen to new levels of, uh, you know, um, stalling tactics. They, the Republicans wanted this legislation. They're the ones who have been saying the border is a crisis. They're the ones who have been saying we have to fix it. They came up with a deal to fix it. And like Congress has acted for more than 200 years. They worked with the other party to come up with a deal that we may see as early as today. We may see the details in it. It won't do everything the Republicans want because the margins are so small in Congress that you have to have Democrats on board to pass any legislation. Therefore, there's compromise. The trouble is that Donald Trump has put his uh, his thumb on the scale and said, I don't want you to pass a border bill because I want to take care of it through executive action when I'm president, which is a is a song we've heard before. He did that when he he said that when he was president uh, the first time and, you know, didn't go all the way in securing the border. So, you know, it seems that these election politics have really overtaken any attempt at, at legislation. We will see the deal today or this weekend. We'll have a vote. Maybe reason will will prevail. There are a couple of Republicans, Dan Crenshaw and Kevin Kramer in the House and the Senate, respectively, who have both said this is ridiculous. If we think it's a policy issue, let's get it done. Hmm. So maybe, maybe it will. Well, Alex, a fact check here could be useful. Speaker Johnson in the House and former President Trump have claimed that this new border bill would allow 5,000 people to cross the border every day. What would the bill actually do? Well, I'll say Senator Langford of Oklahoma, a Republican from Oklahoma, who has been leading this effort, has said that there are that that is not true and that there are a lot of, you know, Internet rumors uh, is what he said. He 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 had a good quip uh, in the Senate this last week where he said uh, my his favorite quote from Abraham Lincoln is don't believe everything you read on the Internet. Um um, but the thing is that it's hard to contradict what uh, Speaker Johnson is saying because there is no text of the bill. And and it, it can be very frustrating for us reporters because we basically have been hearing we're really close now um, all week. I mean, uh, President Biden endorsed this compromise seven days ago, and we still don't even know what it is. Right. Well, Senator Schumer, um, Democrat in the Senate from New York, has promised that there will be a text by Sunday. On Wednesday, the House Homeland Security Committee, in what we can say is a related move, voted to advance articles of impeachment against Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas. This tees up a floor vote that could make Mayorkas the first cabinet secretary to be impeached in nearly 150 years. So, Idris, Republicans accuse Mayorkas of failing to secure the border, but federal data analyzed by the conservative Cato Institute shows that the Biden administration has arrested 5 million people and deported more than half of them over a two-year period, which is three and a half times more people deported per month than President Trump did over a two-year period. So explain to us what exactly are the high crimes and misdemeanors that Secretary Mayorkas is being accused of? So it's, it's very interesting. I went back and I looked at that uh, cabinet example, um, and uh, the Secretary of War at the time was impeached for something of actual high crimes, whereas in this case, I think the Republicans are impeaching Mayorkas for essentially a policy difference over the border. All right. We're heading to a quick break. Stay with us. 
Support for this podcast and the following message come from Integrative Therapeutics, with vitamins and supplements previously available only through practitioners, including Cortisol Manager. Unlock your best self with clinician-curated supplements from Integrative Therapeutics, now on Amazon. This message comes from NPR sponsor, the American Cancer Society. By the end of this message, two people will be told they have cancer. Yes, every 15 seconds, someone is diagnosed with cancer. But by the end of this message, you could do something about it with your donation. A gift of any amount to the American Cancer Society can help those facing cancer get free rides to care or a free place to stay closer to treatment. Donate today at cancer.org. When the economic news gets to be a bit much... Listen to The Indicator from Planet Money. We're here for you, like your friends, trying to figure out all the most confusing parts. One story, one idea, every day. All in 10 minutes or less. The Indicator from Planet Money, your friendly economic sidekick. From NPR. Let's move on to some tech news. On Wednesday, senators gave a tongue lashing to top tech executives from Meta, X, TikTok, Discord, and Snap. It was part of a Senate Judiciary Committee hearing on child safety protections. Mr. Zuckerberg, you and the companies before us, I know you don't mean it to be so, but you have blood on your hands. You have a product. You have a product that's killing people. That was South Carolina Republican Lindsey Graham speaking at a Senate Judiciary Committee hearing on online child safety. Wendy, there were several heated exchanges between senators and tech executives. At one point, Meta CEO Mark Zuckerberg turned around to apologize to families who were at the hearing. In another tense moment, Tennessee Republican Marsha Blackburn assailed Zuckerberg over internal Meta documents suggesting that his company puts the lifetime value of a teen user at $270. Activists in the hearing room wore T-shirts saying, I am worth more than $270. Tell us about the scene, Wendy, and what were your biggest takeaways? Well, it was quite a scene there, especially when Mark Zuckerberg stood up, turned around, and apologized to the families. Uh, Whoever gave him that advice to do that, or if he did it on his own, it was an impressive move. It's not clear how sincere his apology was, but he felt it was necessary to do that. And Congress feels it's necessary every once in a while to call all these executives in and smack them around for a while and then not do anything about it. There has always been, I think, since the Internet came to be, and as Dries, I think, said in the Lincoln administration, um, the, you know, an effort to regulate what goes on online. And that's always hindered by the argument, these are private companies, there's free speech, you know, the government shouldn't be involved. So they're stuck in this conundrum where what they're left with is calling these guys in um, and yelling at them for a while. So there was that apology. That was one key takeaway. The others was that um, two of the five chief executives who were there agreed to support a bill that does exist, but it hasn't passed yet, the Kids Online Safety Act. Some of them said they would not support it because the the language is so broad. It, it requires the social media apps to take, quote unquote, reasonable measures to prevent harm. But it doesn't define what those reasonable measures are. So they would be stuck between maybe not going enough or maybe going too far. Hmm. And then, of course, Congress just very quickly also used it to um, 
to sound tough on China in this election year. Well, Idris, as Wendy points out, this is sort of a ritual on Capitol Hill, calling in these tech CEOs, the optics of, you know, senators getting to grandstand and beat them up. Um, In this case, you know, as she said, Mark Zuckerberg turned around and apologized. Maybe he was trying to avoid uh, the bad optics moment that the university presidents had, um, you know, not so long ago where they were not seen as as reacting correctly on anti-Semitism on college campuses. But I want to know, could this hearing actually make a difference to how these platforms are regulated or monitored? So this is the central contradiction where, you know, you've had years of these sorts of hearings in which Zuckerberg and other executives are drawn in and attacked for various things, for uh, failing to safeguard privacy, for failing to safeguard children, uh, for not handling data correctly, etc. And, um, you know, this is something that I thought about when I was reporting on whether or not generative AI would affect elections, but Congress has really not been able to address the last few battles on on tech regulation. It has failed to do anything meaningful on privacy. You know, the Europeans set privacy standards basically through the GDPR. It's failed to really do anything on social media regulation, and uh, it's probably also going to fail to do anything to regulate how generative AI affects uh, elections itself. Even though there is bipartisan sort of contempt for tech companies when it comes to the actual hard matters of, of putting together policy solutions, uh, Congress has been has failed and I think will continue to fail. Hmm. Alex, another tech CEO made news this week. Elon Musk says the first human to receive a brain implant from his Neuralink company is doing well. Neuralink received FDA approval for human study in May and began looking for quadriplegic candidates for clinical trials. In a tweet, Musk said the first implant was performed last Sunday and, quote, initial results show promising neuron spike detection. Tell us, Alex, what else do we know about this procedure? And has anyone other than Elon Musk himself confirmed that the patient is doing well? Yeah, we, there's a lot we don't know. And I think that's just raising, you know, considerable questions uh, about, you know, Elon Musk has a long history of uh, declaring victory and being, you know, his own best hype man, uh, regardless of the project. And so I think there is a healthy dose of of skepticism. Um, and I think there's also some, you know, even though this this procedure has been used, um, you know, to help people with certain disabilities and handicaps, in theory, to be able to use, you know, Elon Musk has talked about, you know, upload it, you know, uh, being able to transfer uh, this uh, chip from one body to the other that you can sort of, um, you know, potentially one day even uh, you know, sort of recreate your personality in another body and, you know, the very sci-fi, um, sci-fi stuff. So um, I guess at the moment, um, there's a lot we don't know. Um, but, uh, you know, Elon Musk, uh, as is his won't, is very good at getting press and attention. And he has done that, um, despite the fact that we don't actually know a lot about it. Hmm. Well, I don't think he's loved all of the press that he's gotten this week. A Delaware judge voided Elon Musk's $55 billion Tesla pay package. It was the largest compensation plan in the history of public markets, according to the judge. The decision could knock Musk down from his current status as the richest person in the world. Idris, what was the decision behind this ruling? And how has Musk responded? 
Uh, well, he's not pleased, but the, uh, the the pay package was, you know, worth $56 billion, um, which is a little bit more than I make as a journalist. So um, I, <laughs> I understand it. I, I, think, uh, I think I saw that uh, it's greater than the GDP of most countries. Um, but uh, the, the judge basically said that uh, Tesla's board um, had incorrectly uh, given him too lucrative of a package that it wasn't independent enough uh, from Musk, and he shot down a lot of the arguments that um, that his attorneys made that uh, he needed such a sweet deal in order to stay with the company because his talents as a businessman um, are so renowned. Um, uh, all of which is to say that Musk will have to console himself with the uh, hundreds of other billions that he has. Um, so maybe he'll be all right. Hmm. Wendy, how has Musk responded? He's he's threatened to move out of Delaware, hasn't he? Yes, and he meaning has move act- his company. Right, exactly. And he has uh, suggested on on X, Twitter, his his platform, that one should never incorporate your company in Delaware. And of course, Delaware, for those who don't know, is a state where many, many, many corporations simply have a post office box and incorporate there because of the the laws of that state. And um, no, and Elon Musk and this judge have tangled before. She is actually the same judge who blocked him from backing out of buying Twitter when at one moment he had um, he had some uh, last-minute uh, jitters about it. Um, she loves to quote Shakespeare and Star Trek, and, or, yes, and her rulings, um, and uh, Musk is really going after her now in a way that is similar in a way to the way Donald Trump goes after judges. Hmm. Meanwhile, in a blow to TikTok, Universal Music Group says that it withdrew licensing for its songs on the social media app. UMG is a giant in the music industry and represents artists such as Taylor Swift, Elton John, and The Weeknd. The removal of music from the TikTok platform comes after a breakdown in contract agreements. UMG says artists are not being properly compensated and AI concerns have not been addressed. Alex, how has TikTok responded? Well, first of all, this Universal isn't just giant. It is the biggest um, uh, music company in the entire world. And essentially their contract uh, was up at, with TikTok this week. And they said TikTok has not, you know, val- uh, had not dealt with their concerns about AI-generated music and various royalty fees of using music from their artists. TikTok has basically... Uh, issued a withering statement in response saying that it was sad and disappointing and that the Universal Music Group had put their, quote, own greed above the interests of their artists and songwriters. Essentially, TikTok is arguing that that the, the app, um, given its popularity, is helping um, you know artists at Universal be able to spread and grow and get their music listened to, and that Universal... Um, is putting their own corporate interests over the interests of the artist. Now, obviously, Universal Music Group disagrees and says that uh, TikTok is you know, basically not paying enough for the right to use the music and is saying that they're not doing enough to combat you know, some of these uh, quickly developing AI-generated mm-hmm. 
music to get around some of those fees. Similar some of the arguments that the Hollywood screenwriters and actors had, of course, with, with AI. Adris, in their first meeting of the year Wednesday, Federal Reserve officials announced that interest rates would remain unchanged. Rates are now at their highest level in more than 20 years. Fed Chair Jerome Powell said they can begin dialing back rates soon, just not yet. So why is the Fed not lowering interest rates yet? Well, the, the Fed is is being cautious and is worried that um, if it cuts rates too soon and inflation returns, then it'll have to backtrack and, and redo its work. Um, you know, there are signs that uh, actually inflation has come down quite a lot. So the core inflation measure that is important to central bankers um, has just grown by 1.9% in the last six months. Um, you know, a lot of the supply issues that had been causing inflation uh, in the years previous um, have have kind of resolved. Uh, the labor market remains tight. Growth is strong, um, which suggests that, that uh, you know, the, the economy is ready for, for a lower rate and other countries um, that are con- considering rate cuts, such as England, are expected to do so as well. So even though um, there isn't an immediate kind of rate cut, uh, many uh, people, including the markets, expect that there will be later on this mm-hmm. year. So aside from staving off inflation and a recession that's been sort of looming over the economy for, you know, a year and a half but hasn't come, uh, does the status quo on interest rates affect consumers in any negative way, Idris? Um, you know, in, indirectly, uh, high interest rates uh, mean that it's harder for businesses to uh, to do the things that they do. I mean, this is hurting private equity. It's hurting uh, startups, for example, and and you know the cost to innovation um, is going to be uh, there. Obviously, this affects mortgage rates for people who are trying to get new houses. Uh, but many people are basically choosing to remain in their house until the interest rates come down. Mm-hmm. So that's probably the most immediate effect that that people see. Right. So Wendy. Some other economic news, the U.S. Treasury is holding its largest ever bond auction to plug the the budget deficit. Tell us briefly what this means. Sure. What it means is that the U.S. Treasury is going to sell more bonds to investors to raise money to pay down the budget deficit. Now, the budget deficit is $1.7 trillion, and this sale is at about $121 billion, which is almost at record levels, but not, I mean, it won't, it won't pay much down on the deficit, but they will continue doing this with two-year and five-year bonds. Um, it, and it, like I said, it is the largest one, uh, but they're not going to do that again for some time after that. So mm-hmm. yeah, we'll see, we'll see what the impact is as, um, as prices begin to come down. Okay. Well, UPS's biggest delivery this week was some bad news, an announcement that the shipping giant is cutting 12,000 jobs. This comes months after the company struck a historic contract deal with the Teamsters Union. None of those union members will be affected. Um, This 2% of UPS's workforce is mostly management. Alex, tell us why the layoffs and is this a victory for blue-collar workers? Well, it's certainly a victory for the union, uh, who you know was pretty engaged in it in a fight that got you know very dramatic near the end and uh, last year. And there was thoughts that actually uh, you know UPS trucks around the country could stop delivering, um, but it, eventually both sides came to an agreement in which uh, the average UPS driver would earn an average of one hundred seventy thousand dollars annual pay and benefits. 
Um, and they also got just little things like um, secure air conditioning in new trucks. And the fact that um, these these layoffs didn't affect them, you know, I think shows it was a sex- successful union. Mm-hmm. Now, that being said, you know, the fact that 12,000 people lost their jobs because, um, you know, they that UPS missed uh, missed their financial targets uh, doesn't ne- isn't necessarily good news for UPS in general or all those people that are now losing their jobs. And I I would expect I have not interviewed them, but I expect UPS managers probably feel that the union made them a little bit more constrained. Hmm. So uh, you know it, it's one of it's a, a very complex issue within the company. Um, the layoffs are are not good, but the Teamsters union that negotiated it. Um, did secure uh, those people their jobs. Right. We're going to take a quick pause. Meanwhile, I'll ask you if you'll be watching the Grammys this weekend. Variety was the first to report that Tracy Chapman, who hasn't performed in public in years, will join Luke Combs on stage for a duet of her hit Fast Car. Combs had his own massive hit with his cover of Fast Car last year, Chapman's appearance with him is a surprise. She has only performed for the cameras three times since wrapping up her last tour in 2009. I, for one, am really looking forward to seeing this amazing singer-songwriter back in action this weekend at the Grammys. I remember when we were driving, driving in your car, speed so fast, it felt like I was drunk, city lights lay out before us, your arm felt nice, my shoulder Stay with us. We've got a lot more still ahead. On Wildcard, the new podcast from NPR, you'll hear people like comedian Jenny Slate reflect on their lives. What is something you think about very differently today than you did 10 years ago? Dressing. Like, not salad dressing. I've always loved it and I'll never stop. (laughs) Dressing my body. That's all part of the new game show, Wildcard, only from NPR. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. On Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, we have very important people on our show and then ask them about very unimportant things. Here's U.S. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen. Uh, We are also reliably informed that among your enthusiasms, in addition to macroeconomic policy, is mobile games. Uh, There is some truth in that. There's some truth in that. Join us for the NPR podcast that considers all the other things. That's Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. On It's Been a Minute, we're keeping you in the know when it comes to culture. I break down the latest trends and the forces behind them and introduce you to the creatives who think deeply about how we live today. Come for some good old cultural analysis and have a few laughs with me. Listen to the It's Been a Minute podcast from NPR. Do you ever wish you could get your stories in three hours rather than three minutes? Or maybe you're sick of doom scrolling, getting your news in bits and pieces. That is where Embedded comes in. We bring you documentary series that will change the way you think about things. Find us wherever you get your podcasts. Let's turn now to swing states. So, Wendy, a recent poll from Bloomberg News and Morning Consult offers new insight into the 2024 race in swing states. More than half of swing state voters say they would not vote for Donald Trump if he's convicted of a crime. 
But six in 10 swing state voters blame President Biden for the influx of migrants at the U.S.-Mexico border, according to the same poll. So tell us, Wendy, what were your big takeaways from the poll? Well, it was very interesting to see that 53 percent number on Donald Trump if he was convicted of a crime, even though the chances of any of his trials getting to a verdict stage by November is increasingly slim. It was very interesting to us to see where the floor is for Donald Trump's support. And if we if you dig into the crosstabs, as we call them, the numbers by demographic uh, standards, you can also see that Trump's base has shrunk a little bit. People who voted for him in 2016 were even more unwilling to vote for him if he were convicted of a felony than people who voted for him in 2020. So some of the original base is dropping off people who were saying, sure, let's give him a chance. Um, by 2020, they may have voted for him again. But in 2024, if he is a convicted hmm. felon, that seems to be where people will stop voting hmm. for Donald Trump. So, uh, Wendy, yes. tell us a little bit, though, about what the poll reveals about the issues that could shape the election and sway voters beyond, you know, uh Trump getting convicted of something or Biden, you know, is how much of uh, of an issue is the border, for example? Well, that was one of the most fascinating findings was that as the economy is starting to get a little better or as people are starting to feel better about their position, their home, their job, etc., immigration is rising as an issue. Now, part of that is also because Republicans and conservative media, as we talked about at the beginning of the show, have been hammering on the immigration issue every single day, and it's been highlighted in the news. But even in states we tested, such as Michigan and Pennsylvania and Wisconsin, which are far from the Mexican border, um, immigration keeps rising as an important issue. And they're looking at this stalemate in Congress the interesting thing is they're blaming President Joe Biden and the Democrats for not getting it done. Hmm. All right. Idris, how much stock should we put into polls like this one, especially so early in the year? So it's certainly true that polls this far out um, don't match the inevitable outcome uh, months in the future, but they serve as a snapshot for where sentiment is now. Um, you know, the president and his campaign argue basically that the polls can't be trusted right now. And further, and I think they're right on this, that they're going to run a billion dollar campaign that's going to basically make the case to the American voters. And, you know, what happens um, in November is the aftermath of all of those effects. But they do suggest, you know, points of, of pain for the president, right? Clearly, uh, Americans are uh, upset about the border. They say that they trust uh, Donald Trump more to handle border issues. Um, and that that will be a problem for the president going forward. Um, and, you know, you also see that voters say that they um, are discontented over Biden's age and think that he's too old for the office. And of course, that's not going to go away. So, um, we shouldn't read these polls as set in stone. We shouldn't say that you know Michigan is is totally lost for the Democrats. But um, this does this is good suggestive evidence of what the Democrats uh, will need to work on in the year ahead. All right. Well, another thing that is pulling the president in two directions. NBC News says President Biden has been meeting privately with national security aides this week, and that he raised some questions. 
if the president orders military action to avenge the deaths of three U.S. soldiers who were killed by a drone strike in Jordan, could that jeopardize ongoing talks over the release of American and Israeli hostages in Gaza? Idris, what do you think of that? I think the White House is currently dealing with a very complicated uh, situation. Obviously, they want uh, to facilitate a hostage deal uh, to return uh, the hostages that Hamas took to Israel. Um, you know, there have been negotiations going on in Paris uh, to affect that, but it's also part of uh, a wider Middle East, um, you know, war and uh, an effort to normalize relations between the Saudis and the Israelis, which was put on hold, um, as well as containing the Iranian proxies. So, um, you know, the hostage deal sort of unlocks all of these other issues. And and so the White House has to proceed with caution. And I think that's why they've telegraphed um, in kind of stark terms what exactly they're going to do uh, to respond to the death of the three American service members um, earlier this week. Mm -hmm. All right, Alex, how hard is it going to be for President Biden to keep attention on his domestic record in an election year in which he's had a lot of wins when we're seeing all these problems across the Middle East and elsewhere mounting? Well, I think Biden has a little bit of history on his side when that comes to mind. You know, as as long as there is not an attack on the homeland, um, it is is very unlikely for foreign policy to have a dramatic effect on an election. Um, but that's why you see now President Biden pivoting to some of these domestic concerns. It's why you see them really both, you know, pushing out the, these uh, robust economic numbers. Um, if the Fed does cut interest rates later this year, um, that could end up, you know, spurring further economic growth. And yeah, one really interesting crosstab in that poll that uh, you mentioned earlier was that even though Americans still overwhelmingly don't think the economy is going in the right direction, but when in that same poll, they asked them, well, you don't think the economy is going well, but what do you think about the economy in your local community or your state? And then 52% of people said they thought the economy was going in the right direction. So that's one thing, but that's also why you see Joe Biden pivoting to the border with these really historic numbers of migrants coming across and completely overwhelming the system on the southern border. Um, and, you know, there's never been any good options uh, when it comes to the border when Biden came into, into office. But now there are a lot of bad ones because Biden essentially is trying to, you know, convince people that are want him to lose in nine months to uh, agree to this deal. And uh, so the domestic policy um, politics um, are just going to get trickier with every day closer we get to the election. Well, Alex, you mentioned how much of an impact foreign policy may or may not have on the 2024 election. We're actually devoting a whole show to that on Monday. How is foreign policy factoring into how you vote, listeners? What foreign issues are you most concerned about? Leave us a voicemail at 855-236-1212, or you can email us at 1A at WAMU.org. Wendy, quickly, President Biden is campaigning in the swing state of Michigan this week. How does his perceived tilt in favor of Israel over Palestinians put him at risk in a heavily Arab American community like Dearborn? It, it does put him at risk. And he's under uh, for Michigan, which is a, one of those must win swing states. Right. So there is a sizable and highly concentrated Arab American and Muslim American community in Dearborn and some in Detroit. 
And um, those voters are very, very upset with Biden over his Israel policy, which is to stand by Israel pretty much no matter what. And so they um, see Palestinian suffering and they are exhorting him to do something about it. He is he was there yesterday picking up the UAW endorsement and doing some other stops. And on that day, he issued an executive order imposing sanctions on Israeli citizens who take up arms against Palestinian uh, residents of the West Bank. And so that, I think, was an attempt by the president to say, I hear you a little bit. There's mm -hmm. a, he has a long way to go to earn their, their support back. Well, the Biden campaign apparently has a plan to boost his popularity, and it involves the biggest pop star of our time. On Monday, the New York Times reported that Biden's campaign is seeking an endorsement from Taylor Swift, who did endorse him back in the last election. Though Swift has not endorsed anyone this time round, the story has sparked outrage among conservative pundits. He can't name a Taylor Swift song. Taylor Swift can't name a Biden policy. This relationship was engineered in a lab. A single post of hers led to 35,000 new registrants. That's a whopping amount of power. That's arguably more power than the president. It is so scary. There was a recent poll. One-fifth of Taylor Swift fans said they would back whichever candidate that she endorsed. That was a Washington Post video mashup of Fox News hosts and guests this week. Alex, how much would an endorsement from Swift actually help Biden? And what are conservatives so upset about? Well, conservatives, I think the, the fact of the matter is that, A, I think you put Taylor Swift, anyone in news can tell you, if you put Taylor Swift in a headline, you, you get a lot of clicks. So I think some of the conservative outrage on TV is about, uh, is about getting eyeballs. That being said, I think it also does speak to her tremendous cultural clout um, over this past year. I mean, there's a reason why she was time person of the year. Right. Is that um, in even though she endorsed Joe Biden in 2020, um, you know, her cultural clout has only increased, um, not just because of the, you know, smashing success of her era's tour and the movie around it, um, but also, you know, if you want to, you know, think of her as like she has a base, uh, you know, of supporters, she's expanded that base uh, as part of her relationship with uh, NFL star tight end Travis Kelsey and appearing at all these games. So, um, you and know, he will I be playing that, in the Super Bowl, of course. So there's exactly, that. Exactly. And, uh, you know, there were, you know, this is a little bit Zapruder film uh, uh, by some conservatives, which see conspiracy in the NFL getting them to the Super Bowl to further increase her clout, um, which will then help Joe Biden win the election. Um, that was uh, unfortunately something I had to go down the rabbit hole this week. But uh, yeah, I mean, she's one of the most influential people in in the country. And I, I don't know if she's determinative, but Joe Biden could use a little cultural cachet. Well, you know, she has certainly moved economies. As we know, the question is whether she can move elections. One of our listeners, Stephen, writes in to say that he hopes we will mention that Billy Joel has released a new single yesterday for the first time in 17 years. He's so excited. He loves it. And he wants to point out that Billy Joel will also be performing at the Grammys. Um, that is true, although I doubt that Billy Joel will impact the election, but we'll see. Now to one of my favorite parts of the show where you all dig into your reporter's notebooks. I'd like each of you to tell me quickly about an interesting story we haven't talked about or something you're watching in the week ahead. Wendy, you first. 
Um, <laughs> well, I'm really watching this border deal and to see, I know we talked about it, but it is to see how this happens, whether this persistent issue can be solved in a closely divided government. All right. How about you, Idris? Um, well, it's related to Ukraine, but, uh, you know, the money that was supposed to go to Ukraine, the $60 billion, is tied up in this border deal. Um, and this is something maybe for your next hour. But, uh, you know, in Ukraine, there is a big spat between the president uh, and his top general, uh, which is also going to affect, I think, how um, how countries in, in Europe and also in America, how how, uh, how the funding goes forward. So I'm watching that as well. Alex, give us something out of your notebook. Have you got anything quirky or wacky that we haven't talked about, but that you want our listeners to know about? Um, oh, quirky or wacky. Well, I, I will say that this is something uh, that Netflix just announced. They're doing a series about the assassination of President James Garfield. And this is a, a, a idiosyncratic uh, history story that I'm fascinated by because the truth is Garfield probably should have lived and only died because of gross medical incompetence. And essentially back then, the the prevailing theory was you just had to get the bullet out. Um, and so you had uh, the main doctor basically poking his finger in the wound in the train station where he was shot trying to get the bullet out. And eventually he died of uh, an infection. And there wasn't really a president for six months while he was slowly... Uh, dying in, in in the in the White House. So, anyways, I was very excited that um, this Netflix show uh, is now officially being launched. I felt it was like a show that was made just for me. Wow. Okay. Thank you for adding that to my watch list and the watch list of all the other American history nerds out there. That was a really good one. Our thanks this week to Wendy Benjaminson of Bloomberg, Idris Kaloon of The Economist, and Alex Thompson of Axios. Before we head to the global edition of the News Roundup, Come on, baby, why don't we paint the town? We remember musical theater legend Cheetah Rivera. She appeared in more than 20 Broadway musicals over six decades, setting a new standard with her portrayals of Anita in West Side Story, Rose in Bye Bye Birdie, and Velma Kelly in Chicago. Rivera was born Dolores Conchita Figueroa del Rivero in Washington, D.C. She described herself as a tomboy when she was young, something that drove her mother crazy. So her mom signed her up for ballet class. The rest, as they say, is history. Cheetah Rivera was 91. Hold on, hon, we're gonna bunny hug. I want some aspirins down at Stay with us. We've got much more of the Roundup still ahead. On a brand new start to do a There are a lot of issues on voters' minds right now. Six big ones could help decide the election. Guns, reproductive rights, immigration, the economy, health care, and the wars overseas. On the Consider This podcast from NPR, we will unpack the debates on these issues and what's at stake. You can listen to NPR's Consider This wherever you get your podcasts. Listen to Embedded for moments that stay with you. 
I could smell the smoke. I could smell the dust. Voices that resonate. <laughs> Stories that change the way you think about your life. How, how did we get here? The Embedded Podcast is NPR's home for original documentary series. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. All right, let's get into the global edition of the News Roundup. It's been a week since Israel first shared intelligence that a dozen employees of the UN Relief Agency for Palestinian Refugees were involved in the brutal October 7th Hamas attack on Israel. Secretary of State Antony Blinken called the information, quote, highly credible, and the U.S. and at least nine other donor nations halted payments to the UN agency. But who will suffer the consequences? If UNRWA stops helping us, then our people will face death minute by minute. And after drama over a reported military shakeup, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky gets some good news out of the European Union. The European Council reconfirmed Europe's unwavering commitment to stand with Ukraine. Our guests are Nancy Youssef, national security correspondent at The Wall Street Journal. Thanks for being here, Nancy. Great to be with you. And in the studio today, Alex Ward is national security reporter at Politico, anchor of National Security Daily, and author of the forthcoming book, The Internationalist, The Fight to Restore American Foreign Policy After Trump. Welcome, Alex. Yeah, thanks for having me back. And Felicia Schwartz is U.S. foreign affairs and defense correspondent at the Financial Times. Thanks for joining us, Felicia. Great to be here. So let's start this week, not in Gaza, but a little further to the east in the Kingdom of Jordan. On Sunday, a drone attack killed three American Army reservists, including two women, and injured at least 40 others at a U.S. base called Tower 22. The President and Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin have both said that the United States will respond. Nancy, I want to get into responsibility and response in a moment, but let's start with what happened on Sunday. Well, there was this base. I shouldn't call it a base. It's an outpost. 350 troops there called Tower 22. And a drone um, came in and at a low altitude and moved towards the housing barracks in the middle of the night when troops were sleeping and detonated. It's the deadliest attack on U.S. troops since the war in, um, between Israel and Hamas began October 7th. It's one of the deadliest attacks, uh, hostile acts by a foreign adversary against U.S. troops since the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan. And this came after 160-plus attacks on U.S. forces in Iraq and Syria um, post-October 7th. And so we had seen Iranian-backed militia groups targeting U.S. Um, installations. The difference is I think there was some feeling that this base was um, somewhat safer because it was in Jordan. And I also think that what we're discovering is that there were a series of failures to stop that drone from entering. The U.S. is still trying to determine exactly what happened, but it appears that among the theories they're looking at is whether a f their own drone that was supposed to protect them was coming at the same time if that created confusion, if the altitude of the drone coming in caused um, an issue, the fact that um, alarms didn't go off within the base once the drone in entered. So there were a number of factors that may have contributed to this, but it, it, it marked for the U.S. an escalation, a red line that they had said could not be crossed, which was the death of U.S. troops in response to U.S. support of Israel in its war. Mm -hmm. And so now we're hearing about potential retaliatory strikes by the United States, mm -hmm. potentially as early as this weekend. 
Now, as you point out, Nancy, there have been more than 160 attacks on U.S. bases all over the region by supposedly Iranian-backed militias from Iraq to Syria to Jordan as well. But before this week, few Americans had even heard of Tower 22, this U.S. military desert outpost that sits um, near the demilitarized zone on the border between Jordan and Syria. Alex, tell us, what are U.S. troops doing there? Well, that that spot that Nancy talked about, Tower 22, is mostly an outpost to keep tabs on two entities. One is a, a refugee camp of 8,000 people there in Rukban, and then also the anti-ISIS fight, So, or and also keeping track of militias. So it's it's got a lot of uses, but having Tower 22 in Jordan, basically six miles from the Iraqi border and 12 miles from At-Tamf, which is another outpost that we have in Syria, having them there makes it a lot easier for U.S. troops to go in and out of Syria, mostly Syria, but also Iraq. Um, and it's a place where, unfortunately, we lost uh, Sergeant William Rivers, Specialist Kennedy Sanders, and Specialist Brianna Moffat in that attack. Um, and, you know, three of 350 or so folks that are there. Uh, what, what I would also say is that, you know, the U.S. presence there has been uh, not a secret, but not overly advertised, um, in part because it, it sort of grew out of the anti-ISIS fight and it has stayed. And Jordan doesn't really like advertising that a lot of U.S. troops are there. Um, you know, Syria and and Iraq aren't super happy about it either. And, you know, and especially in this wave, this transpartisan wave of folks who are questioning uh, America's military role in the Middle East, they're wondering, you know, why effectively do we have troops um, in that region to be uh, attacked by Iranian militias? You noted the three Army reservists who died in the attack. President Biden has expressed his condolences, and he and Mrs. Biden were in Dover, Delaware today for the dignified transfer of their remains. All three were from Georgia and were assigned to the 718th Engineer Company, a U.S. Army Reserve unit based out of Fort Moore, Georgia. This attack comes after weeks of efforts to keep the Israel-Hamas war from spreading throughout the region. Initially, the Biden administration blamed Iran-backed militant groups. Iran has denied involvement. And on Wednesday, the U.S. shifted blame to a group in Iraq. We believe that the, uh, uh, the attack in Jordan was, uh, was uh, planned, resourced, and facilitated by an umbrella group called the Islamic Resistance in Iraq. Uh, which contains uh, multiple groups, including Kataib Hezbollah. And Kataib Hezbollah actually put out a statement saying that they did not coordinate the attack with the Iranian government. President Biden has indicated that he has decided on the U.S. response. And on Thursday night, Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin spoke at the Pentagon saying the U.S. will respond. We look to hold the people uh, that are responsible for this accountable. And we also look to make sure that uh, we continue to take away capability from them as we go forward. You know, I don't think the, uh, the adversaries are of a one-and-done mindset. And so they have a lot of capability. I have a lot more. Felicia, how does identifying the group responsible set the stage for a U.S. response? So first, this identification allows the planners at the Pentagon to kind of go through their war plans and hone in on specific targets linked to this group. But like you said, it's an umbrella group. It contains um, Kataib Hezbollah, um, who you just mentioned, some other militias that have also waged attacks. So I think, you know, we're going to see, as Nancy said, as soon as this weekend, uh, we've been hearing a lot 
from American officials kind of vaguely about how, you know, they don't want a wider war, but they, you know, um, need to raise the price or make it clear to um, these Iranian-backed groups. And Iran, their chief sponsor, backer, Iran is providing training, weapons, etc., um, that, you know, the price for striking and killing American service members is, you know, too high. So I think we're we're kind of waiting to see what that is. But I think one thing we'll see potentially is whereas uh, over eight, last month the U.S. struck a leader of one of these militia groups, now we'll probably see them go after Iranian personnel in both Syria and Iraq that are helping these groups. For example, maybe some Iranian bases they maintain. Um, but we've also seen reports of you know IRGC leaders in Syria and elsewhere leaving uh, in preparation for the fact that they know that they'll be targeted, which, you know, perhaps I think the U.S. and Iran have been kind of engaged in a very carefully choreographed dance where they're they're kind of firing at each other in a way that goes, doesn't go over a certain line. And so I think the question is, you know, as both Iran and the U.S. climb the escalation ladder, somewhat intentionally, somewhat not, perhaps, can they can they kind of keep from crossing this red line? And I think we'll begin to get a sense of that this weekend. Hmm. Nancy, for weeks we've spoken about the U.S. not wanting a wider regional conflict. But since the October 7th surprise attack by Hamas on Israel, we've seen near constant fighting on the Israel-Lebanon border. We've seen Houthi rebel attacks on Red Sea commercial shipping. We've seen Iranian missiles striking Pakistan and Iraq. Uh, as we talked about, some 160, 170 missiles missile attacks on U.S. forces in Iraq, Syria, and Jordan. Can the U.S. retaliate over the deadly attack in Jordan without setting off a full-scale regional war? I'm so glad you mentioned that list because of what we've heard after a lot of those is the Biden administration say, first and foremost, we don't want to risk escalation. And I, I'm stealing this quote from someone else, but I thought it was the best description of sort of what they're trying to do, which is to give Iran and its proxies a bloody nose without actually hitting them in the face. And so they're trying to do this dance of, I think as Felicia described so beautifully, of striking in a way that doesn't lead to unintended consequences. I think the challenge is twofold. One, with every attack, and we saw this this week, there's a risk that, that red lines are crossed and require more military action. In addition, I think the U.S. is hoping that these risks will subside if they're able to reach a ceasefire in Israel such that they don't have to keep confronting these risks. And so what I think you're going to see is an attempt by the U.S. to signal to these groups that their conduct's not uh, acceptable, but at the same time trying to do it in such a way that doesn't risk further unintended consequences because of this ramped up military activity in the region. On Tuesday, the United States ambassador to the United Nations, Linda Thomas-Greenfield, spoke to reporters. We need to look at the organization, how it operates in Gaza, uh, how they manage their, their staff, and to ensure that people who commit criminal acts, such as these 12 individuals, are held accountable immediately so that UNRWA can continue the essential work that it is doing. We need to see fundamental uh, changes before we can resume providing uh, funding directly to UNRWA. So the UN Relief and Works Agency for Palestinian Refugees in the Near East, known as UNRWA, the main humanitarian agency in Gaza, is in crisis after Israeli intelligence reports that 12 staff members were involved in the 
horrific October 7th Hamas terror attack, which prompted the U.S. and nine other major donors to cut off funding to the relief agency. Felicia, tell us briefly about the allegations against the UNRWA workers. So the Israelis allege that at least 12 UNRWA employees were either had connections or direct connections to the uh, deadly October 7th attacks that kicked uh, all of this off, uh, and that 10% of the 30,000, or no, 30,000 is everywhere in the Middle East, but 10 per- 10% of the staff located in Gaza have ties to Islamist militant groups. That's inte- They say they have intelligence backing this up. It, many news organizations, including the FT, the Wall Street Journal, have, have seen some of these dossiers and reported on them. They've also provided this to the U.S., the U.N., you know, lots of other countries who, you know, I think 10 of whom have decided to pause their funding. Um, and so basically, um, the Isra- and this has been part of a pattern. Israel has long had concerns with UNRWA dating back years about the curriculum they teach in schools, about corruption of the organization, about how they define refugees. So this is, um, you know, quite, quite serious allegations, um, but co- comes as part of long-running tension and concerns about UNRWA that Israel and, you know, even the U.S. I mean, Trump, the Trump administration did pause funding to UNRWA for three years. So um, this is quite, these allegations are quite serious. Well, the U.N. immediately fired nine of the accused workers who included teachers and a social worker, and the remaining three are allegedly dead or unidentified. Alex, U.N. officials have warned that UNRWA would have to halt all of its operations by the end of this month if funding is not restored at a time when Gaza is close to famine. So what does this pause in funding mean for Palestinians civilians who have no involvement with Hamas or other terrorist groups. Yeah, it would mean they're not going to get the humanitarian aid that they need at this point. Um, I mean, look, UNRWA is, despite being an imperfect institution uh, across many areas, is a major deliverer of aid and and a coordinator and educator, et cetera. It's just it's running a lot of Gaza, in effect, um, because of you know how hard it is to get stuff in there and and actually just live daily lives. As Felicia was pointing out, it has thirty thousand staff in total, twelve thousand of whom are in Gaza. Uh, that said, UNRWA has dealt with these kinds of budget shortfalls before. Again, as Felicia sort of uh, outlined, I mean, it was already pretty low during the twenty fourteen war between Israel and Hamas. Um, Trump, as she noted. You know, cut funding so that left under with around a four hundred and fifty or so million dollar hole uh, in twenty twenty three alone. It already had a deficit of seventy million dollars. So it's it's an organization that's accustomed to budget shortfalls. This would be a lot harsher though, because the U.S. is the number one donor by far, having provided around three hundred fifty million dollars in two thousand two, for example. Germany, which also is going is questioning support, is the second top donor. So. It's one thing to have budget shortfalls or, you know, certain countries cut some aid. This is a pretty wide scale, uh, you know, withholding of funds, in which case, yes, UNRWA could potentially stop. I think it it will probably have some other emergency reserves or other ways to operate. But, yes, there's no question that at a time when there are many Palestinians suffering because of the war and other issues just in relation to to living in Gaza, um, they are, like, unlikely to get it, at Mm -hmm. least as reliably 
Although State Department spokesman Matthew Miller pointed out that the U.S. had already released most of its funding. So the amount that was being withheld from the U.S. at least, he said, was not that much, was comparatively a drop in the bucket. Nancy, this week Axios reported that Secretary of State Antony Blinken has asked the State Department to conduct a review and present policy options on possible U.S. and international recognition of a Palestinian state after the war in Gaza. All right. So, Nancy, I want you to lay this out for us. U.S. policy has been to oppose the recognition of Palestine as a state, stressing that such statehood must be achieved through direct negotiations between Israel and the Palestinian Authority. But if the State Department is now considering recognizing Palestinian statehood, what does that signal? Well, I think it's part of a broader approach to reach some sort of agreement to end the war in in Gaza. So let me just back up by saying that the Biden administration is leveraging something that Israel wants, which is a normalization with the Saudis. And the Saudis have said for that to happen, we need um, to see a pathway towards a Palestinian state. And so that is a context in which we're hearing this conversation about looking at options. And so I think the conversation is intended to reach some sort of agreement such that the the U.S. can say, while Israel has said it opposes a Palestinian state, in order to reach an agreement with the Saudis, which would um, not only potentially end the, the, the war, but create a pathway for other Arab states to help rebuild Gaza, there needs to be a discussion about some pathway towards statehood. So it's part of a broader strategy to reach some sort of st- settlement that leverages um, one thing that the Israelis have said that they want, which is normalization with with the Saudis. Felicia, Britain's foreign minister last week um, or this week has said that his government is also considering recognizing a Palestinian state. What sort of pressure does this put on Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, who has made very, very clear that he's rejecting a two-state solution or any calls for Palestinian sovereignty? So I think a lot of ink has been spilled uh, describing what are the most significant political challenges that Benjamin Netanyahu has faced in his long political career. But this really, I think this one might take the cake. He's really in the fight of his his political life. He has a very unruly right-wing coalition that, you know, absolutely does not want to see a Palestinian state of any kind. You have some of the most conservative ministers in his government talking about establishing settlements in Gaza, which, of course, is a non-starter for you know, most of Israel, not to mention all of the international community that we are talking about. So he he faces a ton of political pressure. He's going to be up for election probably in in the next year or so. Um, And then, you know, as, you know, kind of alluding to what Nancy said as well, um, he faces a ton of pressure from the U.S. and and the Arab world and and the U.K. and, and everywhere to kind of, you know, outline something compelling for what comes after to, to kind of stop this incredible suffering that we're seeing in Gaza. So he has a very tough needle to thread. Meanwhile, in the West Bank this week, undercover Israeli forces killed three Palestinian militants during a hospital raid in Jenin in the occupied territory. Surveillance footage released by Palestinian authorities shows the Israeli forces moving through the hospital disguised as medics and as civilians. The Israeli military says the men who were killed, including a patient, were using the hospital as a cover. Alex, what has the Israeli army said about the men targeted 
in the attack. Yeah, well, they've said that they're terrorists, effectively, two of which were, were part of Islamic Jihad, um, and that this is you know yet another instance of extremists in Gaza using hospitals or other civilian locations to hide and and you know requiring the Israeli military to get creative or not creative in um, dealing with them. In this case, if you watch the footage, I mean, not to trivialize it, but it looks like a scene out of Born Identity or anything like that. I mean, it's these dozen or so Israeli forces disguised as civilians or medics, you know, going room by room, clearing area by area, looking for these people. It was a targeted operation, right? They weren't, there was no massive exchange of fires. Um, It was very clear who they were going after. Um, And so in this case, you know, it, it, it looks a bit it, – well, it looks dramatic. It looks a little far-fetched. It looks action movie-esque. But this is kind of what – and this is what the Israelis are saying. This is kind of what the international community has been calling for, which is in these kinds of instances where you have targets inside hospitals, do more targeted – um, smaller operations as opposed to larger ones that can lead to more civilian casualties. Uh, so they, in a sense, while there has been an outcry as to, you know, the, the sort of cartoonishness of, of these um, operators in civilian garb, they, they would say this is w- effectively what you all have been calling for. What more do you want Israel to do if there are bad guys in these civilian areas? Wow. Well, the International Committee of the Red Cross has said this about the raid, quote, under international humanitarian law, hospitals and medical patients should be respected and protected at all times. So we know that doctors and patients are protected under the Geneva Conventions. Nancy, how have the UN and the international community reacted to this in-hospital raid with military folks disguised as doctors? And what has Israel said about it? Well, the challenge is in terms of applying international law, it gets the, – the, you mentioned the Geneva Conventions, and you're right. The, the Geneva Convention, though, applies to state on state. And the West Bank is occupied, and so there's some questions about whether it had legal applicability in the situation. And so then you go to the laws of armed conflict. And there are sort of four major pillars of that. One of them is distinction that you must distinguish between civilians and and combatants. And the idea being, therefore, that you can't, unless it's absolutely necessary, go into civilian areas, particularly protected civilian areas like hospitals. And so while there has been sort of outrage over it, these laws were frankly written to oftentimes protect states. So prosecuting this or holding governments accountable um, practically speaking, is quite challenging. Now, Israel has said we 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 are going after terrorists. We have the right to do so. We um, we are using um, lethal force only when necessary. But there's no evidence that these militants pose an imminent threat to the troops. But even if that's the case, adj- adjudicating this is challenging because laws, in some cases, don't apply. to places like the West Bank because it's um, um, occupied and not its own state, and also because prosecuting these um, kinds of cases is is difficult under the best of circumstances. Hmm. On Tuesday, Hamas said it was studying a new proposal for a ceasefire and the release of hostages in Gaza. The deal was presented by Qatari and Egyptian mediators after talks with Israel. This appears to be the most serious peace initiative in months. Felicia, what do we know about the offer? 
So the rough outlines of the deal as we understand them is that this would be a six-week pause uh, with a phased release of hostages. I think there's kind of competing reporting about whether it would be all the hostages or some just to start. And then, you know, of course, on the Israeli side, Israel would be releasing Palestinian prisoners um, from its jails. Um, You know, and the idea is they would start with hostages, move on to soldiers, um, and... Israel had sort of steadfastly refused any kind of agreement that included a permanent ceasefire. This six-week timeline seems to be a compromise, the idea being um, after six weeks, perhaps they could extend it. If the the fighting has died down, we also have Ramadan coming up um, at the edge of this, which perhaps, you know, could extend this. So I think that is sort of, you know, it's not that different from what happened in the past, um, there, there was a ceasefire that was pretty effective and, and, and hostages and prisoners were traded and more aid was able to get in. But of, of course, there's a lot of competing political pressures here. So we'll have to see what happens. Hmm. Meanwhile, on the ground, parts of Khan Yunus were in the evacuation zone for thousands of displaced Palestinians in Gaza. Now, Israeli Defense Minister Yoav Gallant has said that IDF forces will press on south to Rafah. Alex, what impact could that have on the people of Gaza? Quite a bit. The UN says that around half of the 2.3 million uh, Palestinians in Gaza are in Rafah or in its surrounding areas, uh, which that you know, if my, I'm I'm in this business because I'm bad at math, that's more than a million people. Uh, and the the question, of course, here was whether or not Gallant meant this would be imminent, or whether this meant he'd be coming down the line. As, as Felicia was talking about this. Um, this pact here or this this potential deal, maybe if one is struck pretty soon, maybe that operation gets uh, put uh, sent, uh, delayed. That said, I would expect this to happen relatively soon. I mean, it's been Israel's mission kind of from the beginning to take over whole parts of Gaza, uh, you know, clear it. I mean, Khan Yunus, they say so far Hamas has been defeated there, so there's really nothing stopping Israel from moving down to Rafah uh, and, and going down to the southernmost point there of the enclave, which then makes life a lot harder for the civilians because let's let's not forget, Israel has basically said this whole time, hey, people of, of Gaza, go to these safe zones that we've allowed for you or keep going further south and you'll be safe. Well, if Israel keeps moving further south, they're going to inevitably mm-hmm. run into a lot of these people that have been fleeing the violence. Well, this overlaps with a question we got from a listener named Caroline who asks, why, unlike UN refugee agency UNHCR, why does UNRWA not seek to resettle Palestinian refugees, but instead provide social services while keeping them in perpetual limbo? Nancy, can you answer that question? Well, the Palestinian position is that they don't want to be resettled, that they that they want um, a, their own territory, their own safe territory, that they're not looking to move into Egypt or other countries, and that they see that as a further um, displacement uh, of them. Um, so they... For the UN to be there and support them, they're doing it in such a way, <clears throat> excuse me, that honors um, where they want to be. It's one of the reasons you have seen a resistance not only from Palestinians to leave Gaza, but from Egypt to allow them in. Now, there are other factors, but that has been a central um, um, position of the Palestinians. And so it, it to do so would go against, I think, one of their key points uh, about what they want the outcome to be. Mm -hmm. 
All right. On Thursday, President Biden issued a rare executive order targeting four Israeli settlers in the West Bank, including financial sanctions and visa bans against these four individuals who are accused of violence, threats and attempts to seize Palestinian property. Some news from South Africa this week. The ruling African National Congress suspended its former president, Jacob Zuma, because he announced support for a rival political party while still being an ANC member. It's the latest public spat between Zuma and his successor, South African President Cyril Ramaphosa. Zuma has faced many legal difficulties, including corruption allegations and legal cases that led to violent protests in South Africa when more than 300 people died in riots in 2021. So I want to just bring in that we had a listener who sent us a message, human rights lawyer Martina Vandenberg, who says that common Article 3 of the Geneva Conventions covers non-state actors. She says there are no law-free zones. And she points out that disguising soldiers as medical personnel is considered a war crime and that the 1977 protocols to the Geneva Convention cover civil wars. So it is possible to be prosecuted for war crimes committed in a civil war involving non-state actors. I'm sure we'll be talking about that again um, on future shows. I want to talk about the latest from the war in Ukraine, and let's start with the news out of Brussels. Leaders of the European Union's member states gathered there Thursday. They agreed to include $54 billion in aid to Ukraine in the EU's budget for the next three years. Here's European Parliament President Roberta Metsola. This is good news. Uh, Ukraine is our priority, uh, and that is why we needed this agreement Uh, today by all uh, 27 member states and from within the EU budget. This will give uh, the credibility, the legitimacy and the predictability that uh, is expected from us because Ukraine's security is Europe's security. Alex, she emphasized the unanimous approval of the funding by EU's member states, but there was in fact quite a kerfuffle over earlier opposition by Hungary. What happened? Yeah, I should note that my favorite uh, comedian, uh, Susie Azard, says that the, Euro- the European Union is the uh, cutting edge of politics in the most extraordinarily boring way. And, <laughs> and all of this uh, fit into that uh, epithet. So Viktor Orban, the prime minister of Hungary, is Vladimir Putin's strongest ally, let's say, uh, in the EU. I'm not saying that they're super close, but he is more sympathetic to sort of Putin's aims than, than anyone else in the bloc. Now, this $54 billion uh, for continuing aid for Ukraine, which would be mostly for its budget in the form of loans and grants, not necessarily for the military, you know, the, everyone was kind of on board with it other than Orban. Now, the, why Orban wasn't for it is sort of not super clear. One could be, again, he's sympathetic to Putin. The other could be, and this I think is actually more likely, the EU had already frozen a lot of uh, money that was supposed to be for Orban because there's been disagreements between the EU and Hungary over things like LGBTQ rights, immigration rights, minority rights, etc. So Orban might have been orchestrating all this to say, hey, EU, if you want this money to go to Ukraine, unfreeze my money. And there was a, a parade of European leaders Basically going to Orban saying this is not going to happen. German Chancellor Scholz, Dutch Prime Minister Rutte, um, others were like, look, this is a step too far. And so you had Orban sat down at a hotel in Brussels by the Italian Prime Minister Maloney, French President Macron and others to go, look, 
this isn't going to work out for you. In the end, he relented. He did not get his money, and he agreed to the funds going forward. That said, there's one small win here for Orban, which is that now the EU will do a report that goes that looks into okay, how well how well are those funds being used by Ukraine? To kind of go with his. Um, skepticism that, you know, Ukraine, which has corruption issues, might be misusing these funds. But considering what Orban was likely trying to do, a far, far uh, loss for him Mm -hmm. and a win for Kyiv. So, Nancy, why is this such a critical moment for the EU to be supporting Ukraine? Well, this comes at a time when the U.S. has um, stalled on efforts to provide $60 billion of aid for military support. And so there's some question about whether the coalition has the wherewithal to continue to support Ukraine for um, another year uh, in what could be a very um, heavy fighting season, particularly as Russia has the resources to build up its industrial base, has more personnel to put into the battlefield. And so questions about the the stamina, essentially, of the coalition are coming up right now. So even though the aid we saw passed by the EU is focused on economic, it, it, it reinforces the idea that the the allies behind Ukraine are willing to continue to support it um, going forward in what is expected to be a very, very tough year. Hmm. So as you point out, EU funding is secured, but more U.S. aid for Ukraine is still up for debate in Congress. CIA Director William Burns, a career diplomat who served as a U.S. ambassador to Russia, made his position clear in an op-ed in Foreign Affairs this week. The intelligence chief wrote that for the U.S. to walk away from the conflict at this crucial moment and cut off support to Ukraine would be a self-inflicted wound of, quote, historic proportions. Felicia, where does the fight in Congress stand over aid to Ukraine? So um, Chuck Schumer is expected to bring uh, the legislation, which as it stands right now is a is a package that includes some $60 billion in, in, in funds for Ukraine, as well as um, some border uh, and immigration um, policies and so on. But um, that it looks there, it does seem possible that, um, you know, while this has long been a kind of, you know, since late last year, it's been a combined effort. Biden packaged immigration and Ukraine and Taiwan and Israel together that, you know, since this strategy does not seem to be working very well, particularly in the House, that there might be some effort to split these bills um, at some point next week. But I think we will see some movement. We will see a vote and we will see where this ends up. On Monday, Ukraine's President Volodymyr Zelensky met with his top commander, General Valery Zaluzhny. CNN and The Washington Post have reported that Zaluzhny lost his job in that meeting, but confirmation has not yet come from Ukraine. Alex, what is the significance of this potential military shakeup? Oh, one of the great personnel dramas in the world right now. Uh, well, I mean, Zaluzhny has been the the military mastermind of Ukraine's defense against Russia. Uh, of course, you know the the, the very successful re- uh, repel of, of Russia's initial all-out invasion, uh, keeping Kiev in Ukrainian hands, and right at the, at the, as of this point, pushing back on Russian forces in the Black Sea. Right now, we have kind of a stalemate along the you know many hundred mile border or front line of contact there in eastern Ukraine. But there have been a so Zaluzhny has a lot of love uh, in Kiev. 
he's you know loved by the rank and file. People believe that he's really thought this through. He's been pretty outspoken about a lot of things. For example, the the you know belief that you know Russia still has a lot more troops, still has a lot more weaponry, and to, and as Western support either erodes or slows, you know that Ukraine doesn't necessarily have that much in its tank left. He's asking for a lot. He's actually calling pretty openly on Zelensky to authorize at least 400,000 or 500,000, you know, uh, person mobilization to match what Russia's expected to do. Zelensky doesn't like Zelensky for, for a lot of reasons, but two stand out. One, the counteroffensive did not go as to plan, which of course Zelensky signed off on, but Zelensky masterminded. And the other is that many see Zelensky as a potential political opponent. And this is kind of an odd thing then, uh, because if Zelensky is to let Zeluzhny go, and we do not have confirmation of that, then Zeluzhny could use that moment to campaign openly or speak out openly against Zelensky, in which case that could make uh, a possible a re-election effort, uh, which we have to note Zelensky has postponed multiple times. Uh, the elections have been postponed multiple times. That could make Zeluzhny a, a formidable political opponent. So despite him being potentially a rival within his cabinet, perhaps not the best move politically to get rid of him and loosen up that rival to be an actual rival on the political stage. Keep your enemies close, right? <laughs> That's right. That's what they say. All right. Well, moving from ground war to cyber war, FBI Director Christopher Wray warned on Wednesday that Chinese hackers are planning to to bring chaos to American infrastructure. Here he is before the House Select Committee on the Chinese Communist Party this week. PRC hackers are targeting our critical infrastructure, our water treatment plants, our electrical grid, our oil and natural gas pipelines, our transportation systems, and the risk that poses to every American requires our attention now. Felicia, cyber officials have been telling us for years about how powerful China's hacking capabilities are. What is different this time? So this was the most stark and specific warnings um, that, you know, the U.S. government has given about what Chinese hackers are doing to critical infrastructure. And, you know, the rise of artificial intelligence um, definitely heightens the risk of these cyber attacks in the year to come. I think American officials are growing more and more worried about China's seemingly increased interest in infrastructure um, that they think could either be used to cut communications with Taiwan should um, China choose to invade or, you know, kind of so discontent within the U.S. and kind of cause everyday citizens to question American support uh, for Taiwan in what could be like a really devastating conflict between China and Taiwan. Hmm. All right, let's turn to one of China's neighbors, Pakistan. Former Prime Minister Imran Khan was convicted twice this week. On Tuesday, he was sentenced to 10 years in prison on one case. On Wednesday, he was sentenced to another 14 years in a separate corruption case. Nancy, um, what was he found guilty of? And with Pakistan's general election due next week on February 8th, what does his sentencing mean for the polls? Briefly. Well, um, yes, the Tuesday conviction was for corruption. The, uh, the Wednesday conviction was for essentially the unlawful sale of state gifts. His wife was also convicted in Wednesday's case. And remember that he's one of the most popular politicians in Pakistan, and these convictions come right before the February 8th election. And I think these are seen as the army's attempt by way of the judiciary to tip the scales in favor of Nawaz Sharif, 
who is seen as the preferred candidate. You'll remember that this is a common practice in Pakistan. Imran Khan came to power originally because there were cases against Nawaz Sharif, and now the 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 tables have turned as such. I think what's different this time is the um, assertiveness with which we're seeing the use of the judiciary and how much it appears that the military is looking to shape the outcome um, against a very popular candidate. Now, I should say that the military denies that it's orchestrated um, Khan's ouster or its involvement, but I think the questions about this has have really raised concerns about turnout and the, the, the integrity of the elections themselves. Hmm. All right. Well, we will keep watching that on this show. And in the couple minutes we have left, I want to go to my favorite part, lightning round, reporter's notebook. So, Alex, starting with you, what stories are you watching this coming week or what is some wild and crazy or important story that we haven't talked about? Uh, well, I, I, have, I have now have a tradition where I talk about something sportsy every time I'm here. Uh, so one will be that the African Cup of Nations soccer tournament is going on. They are, have already scored most goals of any uh, tournament uh, in in its history, and we're only in the quarterfinals. Plus, all the top teams have been eliminated. So, some new country is going to win, and it's an exciting tournament that happens in the middle of every year. I know if you follow the World Cup or the uh, you know you know what the World Cup is or the European Championships are this summer. But do watch the African Cup of Nations. It is always one of the most fun and exciting tournaments, and uh, a lot of goals. Okay, I'm adding that to my watch list. I did not know more goals than ever before. All right, what about you, Felicia? Uh, shockingly for me, I am also going to talk about something sportsy, which is that the greatest driver, possibly of all time, Lewis Hamilton, is leaving Mercedes and going to Ferrari. This has been basically all I can talk about for the past 24, 48 hours. It is huge. He starts in 2025. This will be his last season with Mercedes, and then he's going to be wearing Ferrari red to end out his career, and I am extremely excited about this. Felicia, I did not peg you for a Formula One fan, but there you have it. Nancy, what about you? I had no intention to talk about sports, so I'll mention the Super Bowl. And I've just been fascinated this week by the intersection of uh, culture, politics, and sports um, with the questions around um, Taylor Swift and Travis Kelsey. And I think it's such an interesting dynamic, and I'm curious how that conversation keeps going. Yeah, and whether she has the possibility to swing the election like she can swing economies by by all evidence that we've seen. All right, before we wrap up this week, the Library of Congress announced that British singer and superstar Elton John and his songwriting partner Bernie Taupin will receive this year's Library of Congress Gershwin Prize for Popular Song. I've been writing songs with Bernie for 56 years. Never when we started out did we ever think that one day this might be bestowed upon us. It's a huge honor, probably the biggest honor we've ever been given as a songwriting partnership. The fact to put us in the same sentence as George and Ira Gershwin, walking in the same uh, path as, as those legendary writers and all of the other great American songbook writers, that in itself is an is incredible compliment. As Bernie says, the prize is named for another legendary songwriting duo, George and Ira Gershwin, whose papers are held by the Library of Congress. Elton John and Bernie Taupin will be honored with a tribute concert in Washington, D.C. that will premiere on PBS stations nationwide on April 8th. A big thank you to our panelists this hour, Nancy Youssef of The Wall Street Journal, Alex Ward of Politico, Felicia Schwartz of The Financial Times. Mike Kidd is our sound designer and engineer with help this week from Kellen Quigley. 
Chris Castano is our digital editor. Maya Garg is our senior managing producer. AC Valdez is our senior supervising producer. Amanda Williams is our special projects editor. Aileen Humphreys is the editor and producer of 1A On Demand. And Barb Angiano produces our podcast. This program comes to you from WAMU, part of American University in Washington, distributed by NPR. I'm Indira Lakshmanan. Let's talk more soon. This is 1A. This message comes from NPR sponsor Capital One. With the Spark Cash Plus card, you earn unlimited 2% cash back on every purchase for your business. Find out more at CapitalOne.com slash Spark Cash Plus. Terms and conditions apply. This message comes from NPR sponsor Stearns & Foster. Every Stearns & Foster mattress is handcrafted for irresistible comfort with indulgent memory foam and ultra-conforming IntelliCoils for your most comfortable sleep. Learn more at StearnsAndFoster.com. Pro-Palestinian protests have popped up on college campuses across the country. But from the eyes of students, what are we missing? From the outside, these protests are painted as really violent when that couldn't be further from the truth. I'm Brittany Luce, host of NPR's It's Been a Minute, and I'm inviting you to hear from student journalists who see what the rest of us cannot. On It's Been a Minute from NPR.